If you would open your Bibles to the book of Acts, chapter 1, verses 1 through 11, will be our passage for the day. We will begin to work our way through the book of Acts through these next few weeks uh, and to see uh, God's faithfulness to his church. Yeah, and if there's anyone from the choir that would like to come down, feel free to. Um, Excellent. Acts, chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. Let's read God's word together. In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day he was taken up to heaven after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. After his suffering, he showed himself to these men and gave them many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them... This command, do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my Father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So when they met together, they asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, and in Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. After he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes, and a cloud hid hid him from their sight. When they were looking intently up in the sky as he was going, suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word. Thank you that it gives us the hope of the resurrection. Even as we think about the hope of the resurrection, Father, we lift up before you uh, Wilmer Earl and his family. We pray that you would give comfort and peace in the midst of the death of Miss Betty. But I thank you that as Christians, we have a hope. We have a hope of the life to come. I also thank you for the Holy Spirit that has promised to be with us, that is continually transforming us, that is interceding before the Father for us. And God, even as we just said, we believe in the Holy Spirit. God, thank you that you have sent your Spirit upon us. I pray that we would be witnesses to the world until the return of Christ, in whose name we do pray. Amen. Please do keep your Bibles open as we, as we look at this passage, but the key word, not just in this passage, but in the book of Acts, is the word witness. You may have picked up on that. I was saying it a few times with the children. Uh, the word witness actually comes from the Greek word marturos. Now, I avoid talking, doing any Greek stuff in here because who cares, right? There is one reason. The word marturos has become the word that we speak about today, martyr. It's the exact same word, just a a, a transliteration in English of the Greek. So when we talk about a martyr or someone who dies for their faith, we're actually talking about the word witness. It's somebody who witnesses, or in some senses, someone who gave the ultimate witness. Now, at a basic level, a witness is someone in a courtroom, hence the, the title of the sermon, uh, it's somebody who saw something occur and who stands up and, and, and testifies or bears witness about the occurrence. At a more complex level, it's someone who stands up for the truth. 
But let me ask you this. Would you be willing to stand up for the truth even if your life depended on it? Are you betting your life on that truth? In the Bible, in the early church, and even today, martyrs are those who make the ultimate witness to some sense, who, who are willing to stake their life on the truths of Scripture, who are willing to bet everything that this is true. In the second century, there's a group of Christians that lived in France. Uh, they called it Gaul, but they lived in this area of France. And this is a historian that wrote about the time period. This is what he said. There was, the government was starting to collect Christians and was starting to kill them because they believed in Jesus Christ. And so what this historian writes is he said, the most effective members of two churches, and the distance of the two churches is about Clover to Bethany. So even if you want to imagine these two churches, they, the most effective members of two churches and their pastor, Pathinus, were burned, their bodies were burned, their ashes were swept into the river to erase their trace on the earth so that no one would ever remember they had even existed. Why? Because they had stood up for Jesus Christ. But it's amazing because the author, this historian, goes on to describe the fact that not only did their witness continue, but we're still talking about them today. And not only are we still talking about them today, those ashes that were swept up, that didn't stop the resurrection because several of the things, that these bodies were going to, they were going to have resurrected bodies. And that was one of the promises that they held to was the life to come. You see, in all of these stories, we're going to see stories like this in the book of Acts and in the second century and even today. There's three main things that they bore witness to. The first thing is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Jesus really died and Jesus really rose from the dead. It really, really happened. And we are staking our life on the fact that it actually happened. The second thing that they really hold to was the power of the Holy Spirit in them. You'll see in, in a lot of these stories, they realize, look, I'm just an ordinary person. I'm not, a nor I'm not normally a bold person. We're going to look at a group of fishermen who just a few weeks ago had run away. And when they'd been asked, do you even know Jesus? They had, they'd said, no, 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 I don't even know who this guy is. So a bunch of cowards were given boldness to speak about Jesus Christ. And not only did they speak about Jesus Christ, they did it in very mighty ways. How were they able to do it? Through the power of the Holy Spirit. And lastly, the hope of the second coming. You see, this life is not all there is. And whether it was, whether it was these, these martyrs in the second century in France, or whether it's today, or whether it's these Christians in the first century, just a few days after Jesus died and rose from the dead, they cannot wait for Jesus to come back. And so everything that we do, everything they do, was eagerly saying, yes, Lord Jesus, come soon. Why were they able to do this? Why were they able to be bold? Because of a group of witnesses, for example, their grandfathers had seen Jesus, had walked with them. And so these grandfathers had told the fathers and others about Jesus Christ. And these fathers had told the children. And, and, and by the time you get to the second century, that's sort of the fourth generation of people. And so eyewitnesses had talked and told other people and had passed along the word about who Jesus was. They had written down accounts. If you look at the four Gospels, these are the stories of what Jesus said and did. And so they were able to stand up for the truth. You see, the witness of the apostles is informed by the same proof that drives the church today. Now, the book of Acts was written by a man named Luke, and you may think I've heard that name before. That's because Acts is part two of the story. The book of Luke is part one, and this is how it starts. I want you to listen carefully. This is Luke chapter one, verses one through four. Many have undertaken to drop an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the very first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. Therefore, since I myself, Luke, have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, it seemed good also 
to me to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things as they have been taught. So Luke had heard about who this Jesus was. He had met with the people who had actually walked with him. He, and, and he had written them down. What's amazing, if you read the book of Luke, he leaves the time of the day. Or he leaves the name of the city. Or sometimes even the gate or the street. He gives specific examples. He's, he's actually, people have called him one of the historians of the New Testament because he gives specific facts so that people could, he, and, and names of people. And he's sort of saying, in doing this, he's saying, go talk to so-and-so. He attends your church. He, he was there. He saw it. He, he organizes these eyewitness accounts. And when we look at the book of Acts, it shows a critical juncture. You see, before this, you have the ministry of Jesus. After this, you have the ministry of the church. Before the book of Acts, you have the Old Testament people of God who would look forward to the promised Messiah. Then you have the promised Messiah. And then afterwards, you have the New Testament people of God. That's us. Where it's not just the nation of Israel, but it's people from all tribes, nations, languages, and tongues, even English. And so what were these first churches like? Have you ever asked that question? What were these first churches right after, right after Jesus went back into heaven? What were they like? How did this message, the Gospels, get from there Jerusalem, and then to the whole Roman Empire, to today, in Clover, South Carolina. How did we get it? The setting of this book, first of all, is in the Roman Empire. That was sort of the historical setting. But geographically, the beginning of this book, it's going to spread out all over this Roman Empire, but it starts in Jerusalem. They're there in Jerusalem. And the date, just 40 days ago, Jesus died and rose again in this very city. So people are talking all about It's still the talk of the town. They're talking about this guy, Jesus, who had just died. And so they're there in Jerusalem right after Jesus died. What's going to happen next? And they're anticipating it. And if you look at the first three verses, first you will see that they are witnesses of Christ's resurrection. Now, the very, there in that first line, you see that the name Theophilus comes up. The word Theophilus just means lover of God. So there's some debate. Some people think this was actually a person. I would have loved to name one of our children Theophilus. It, it never would have gone over with my life. But uh, that some people think that it was an actual person. There's other people that think that this was just written to the people of God. And that he gives this, do you consider yourself a lover of God? Well, then it's for you. It's to a general audience. So either way, literally, this, this book is meant, Luke was writing it not just for one specific person, but for anyone who would call themselves a lover of God. That's us today. That's why we came together. And if you look there in verse 1 at the very end, it talks about all that Jesus began, he wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to say. Calvin calls this the holy knot of Christ's work. You see, when we think about the Gospels, not only do we focus on what Christ said and the words that he said, but also what he did. And I want you to think about a true teacher. When a teacher, a lot of times when we think about a teacher, we think about somebody who stands up and talks and we learn and yeah, yeah, yeah. But when you think about the lessons that you really learned, that really stuck with you, was it because somebody stood up in front of you and just spoke? Was it because they showed you how to do it? And they did it with you. And they made mistakes and they were willing to admit it. And they walked alongside you and they showed you. When it comes to Jesus, not only did he speak great, great things, but he did great, great things. And we're going to see that the disciples, the apostles, actually begin to follow his example. Not only preaching the word, but also loving the people around them. There's an emphasis on God's word, Christ's word, and Christ's deeds. But also, 
we have this ascension or Jesus being taken up. In verses 2 to 3, it talks about how Jesus was taken up into heaven. Here's what's interesting. This, in the book of Luke, in the book of Acts, so the person of Luke is the only person who wrote down Jesus going up into heaven. At first I didn't believe that, and I went back and looked, and it's actually true. Luke is the only one who records Jesus going up to heaven. And it becomes one of the most essential parts of his book. Why? First of all, in verse 3 it talks about how Jesus gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. Jesus was proving to him not only that he had died, but that he was truly alive. How did he do this? I want you to think back. After Jesus rose from the dead, what are some of the things that he did? He walked with them. Think about the story of the road to Emmaus. He walked with them and was talking with them. Not only so, but he tried to prove that it was a real body. What? He ate with them. And he stayed with them. And how long did he stay with them? Not just a couple days. He gives a specific. He stayed with them for 40 days, walking, talking, and doing once again. And Jesus knew that he was going to go back up to heaven. And so in some senses, these are, the, these are the last words that he gets to talk to these very close friend of his. And he knows that after he goes back up to heaven, it's sort of like pushing the ducklings into the pond. It's, it's kind of, they're on their own now. And what are the last things that he talks about? If you look at this, what did he talk about? He talked about the kingdom of God. What does that mean? Do you know the, the, the phrase kingdom of God appears 66 times? in the New Testament. This is one of the major themes of the whole Bible. Why would he talk about the kingdom of God? What do we pray? Thy kingdom come. You see, all of a sudden, it's not just about this world. It's not just about this earth. It's about something that's coming later. And so, and in the same way that Jesus teaches and heals and helps and cares, we're going to see in the book of Acts that his disciples begin to teach and to heal and to help and to care and to show love. In the same way that we're going to see, we, we saw that Jesus rose from the dead, we're going to see his followers are going to talk about that. And they say, you know what? One day we too will rise from the dead and we will live with Jesus forever. The example that Jesus set, we get to follow that example. It will be years from now, but God has promised that this life is not all there is. And so they realize that they are following Christ's example. In verses 4 through 8, we also have the witness of the Holy Spirit. Now, the Holy Spirit has been promised throughout all the Bible. If, if you look at, for example, Joel chapter 2, there's a promise. And we're going to look at that in two weeks. Spoiler alert. Uh, we're going to look at Joel chapter 2 and this promise of the Old Testament and how it's fulfilled in the book of Acts. But also in the book of Isaiah, we just read from chapter 44 and in 32. It promises that the Holy Spirit will come upon his people. What does that mean? Then when Jesus came onto this earth, he said, look, I will not be with you forever. But in John chapter 15, he says, when the counselor comes, whom I send to you from the Father, the spirit of truth who goes out from the Father, he will testify me. And you also must testify, for you have been with me from the beginning. Not only is it promised in the Old Testament, but Jesus promised he would send the Holy Spirit. And even think about baptism. In this passage, it talks about how John the Baptist, when he baptized people, it was preparing them for when Jesus would come. But here, the gift of the Holy Spirit was the new promise of the Messiah, that the Messiah had truly come, the Holy Spirit that would be with us forever. And if you look at the question of the disciples, in, in, in the next verses, they ask, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the nation of Israel? Verse 6, what's, what's kind of funny? It just... Phew, Everything Jesus said went over their heads. They said, wait, 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 you know, when, are you, when is Israel going to be restored once again? The question shows they had no idea what Jesus had done. Because was Jesus coming just to restore the nation of Israel? Absolutely not. 
He was coming to restore sinners back to God. And not just from Israel, but from all over the world. And so we see that even though they still... Sometimes I think we think of the people in the Bible that they're superheroes, that they're bigger than life. These were ordinary people who Jesus had to tell them the same thing over and over and over and over again for them to get it. And sometimes I get discouraged because I feel like God has to tell me the same things over and over and over and over again. But we see the apostles are the same way. And yet, we're going to see that Jesus answers their question and shows them the problem with their question. Because in the next verse, it shows that the Holy Spirit is not bound just to the nation of Israel, but the expansion of the kingdom of God. If you look there, it talks about how the gospel would go forth first from Jerusalem, then to Judea, to Samaria, and then to the ends of the earth. Uh, when we did youth group downstairs, we went through this section, and the example I gave, the, the sort of expansion is sort of, it starts, if it started in Clover, and then went to York County, because Judea was an area, and then the gospel went to Charlotte, and then to the ends of the earth. So there's this progressive, there's this progressive growing, and that's exactly what we're going to see. When we read the book of Acts, the gospel starts in one place in Jerusalem, and then just starts spreading like wildfire all over the world. You see, the Spirit enabled fishermen, people who had no education, to speak with boldness. Christian killers, who at one point, when you look at the story of Saul, he was a person who loved to kill Christians. He thought he was doing the right thing. And then God completely transforms his life, and he begins to proclaim the gospel and helps the church to grow. We also see these disciples, they begin to speak different languages that they never studied, they'd never even known, so that this gospel can go forth. And the reason I point this out is how rarely do we give credit to the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, just in these 11 verses, shows up three times. And what follows is God working through the Holy Spirit. But how often do we actually give the Holy Spirit credit for that? There's actually a book that's called The Forgotten, the Forgotten Section of the Trinity, essentially. How often do we talk about the work of the Holy Spirit? We often talk about the Father and then the Son, but what about the Holy Spirit? When we were at Wheaton College, they had, uh, the, graduate, the graduate school was redoing their mission and their vision. Um, and they'd written this one-sentence phrase that sort of was supposed to encapsulate everything. And afterwards, one of the people who had helped organize it and who had chosen this, this sentence asked me, what did I think? And, you know, I didn't want to tell her what I really thought. So I said, you know, that's fine. It's good. It's good. She said, no, no, no. What do you really think? Because I knew she had written it. And it talked about the power of God. And it talked about his son and about the church. There's no mention about the Holy Spirit. I think too often that's the case. We believe in the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And yet so often we don't give the Holy Spirit credit for it. Charles Spurgeon, a, a famous pastor, used to, the, the, the way, and some churches still have this today, the preacher would actually go up to a, sort of a podium that was up, and you had to go up some stairs, and at, at each step that he, was, that he took, he said, I believe in the Holy Spirit, I believe in the Holy Spirit. 30 years into his ministry, he was all, absolutely terrified of the responsibility of preaching. You'll notice sometimes I'm muttering. That's what I'm saying. Because when I'm afraid and I realize I cannot do it on my own, I cannot, I have nothing worth saying, but I believe in the Holy Spirit. It's not I who changes hearts. It's the Holy Spirit who changes hearts. And so when we look at the, at the work, at the amazing uh, expansion that occurs, why is it? Is it because they're smart? Is it because they're good people? No. It's the work of the Holy Spirit to such an extent that they're willing to bet their lives on it. Third, in verses 9 through 11, we see that they witness until Christ's return. Now, we talked about how Luke is the only person who mentions the ascension of Jesus Christ. But this ascension, this fact, the fact that Jesus went up into heaven, is one of the greatest promises that Christians have as well. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 17 says this, After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so will be with the Lord forever. See, we have this promise. 
that even when we die and even when we are buried, when Jesus comes again, when that trumpet sounds occurs, we will be taken up to heaven and given new glorified bodies. And how do we know this? It's because Christ ascended. You see, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, it talks about how if the resurrection doesn't actually, didn't actually happen, we are to be pitied most among men. Because if the resurrection didn't happen, why are we here on Sunday? Do you know why we celebrate church on Sunday? That's the day Christ rose from the dead. And that's what we celebrate. But if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, what's the point? There is no point. Not only so, if Jesus wasn't taken back up into heaven and people saw him do it, what's the hope that we have for the future life if we will not also ascend with him? And so what's amazing is when they realize this, they cannot remain inactive. Jesus is going up into the clouds, and you can just imagine them staring up up into the sky. They're not really even sure what to do. But the text talks about how these angels come and say, don't just stare up into the clouds. He, they call him to wait and to remember. And Luke chapter 24, verses 44 to 49, kind of gives a, another, another little peek into this view. And it talks about how Jesus opened their minds so they could understand the scriptures. He told them, this is what is written. The Christ will suffer and rise from the dead. And on the third day, on the third day, and repentance and forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. I'm going to send you what the Father has promised, but stay in the city until you've been clothed with power. So Jesus tells them to wait, but he also tells them, you will go tell the entire world about what you've seen and what you have heard. Make sure you tell them until I come again. They are called to be witnesses until Christ's return. And you know what? They were. I want you to flip to the last page of the Bible. Take a look at the last page of the Bible. In Revelation chapter 22... Verse 20. These are the words of John the Apostle. And the way he ends the book of Revelation is absolutely beautiful. If you look there at verse 20, he says, He who testifies to these things says, Yes, I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Everything that's written in this New Testament was in eager anticipation for when Christ would come again. They were expecting it to happen tomorrow. But 2,000 years later, it still hasn't happened. What's amazing is Jesus told a couple parables in Matthew chapter 24, and he gives two examples. There's the example of the people who were expecting Jesus to come tomorrow, and so they didn't plan ahead. And, and, and it talks about how the master didn't come when they were expecting. And there's other people who said, ah, he won't come until like 50 years from now. I can just do whatever I want. And the master comes back that night. And so Jesus' answer is, you don't know the day or the time, but be prepared. Act as though it were today but prepare for tomorrow. And that's the call that we are, we are to eagerly expect for Jesus to come soon, but also plan for this church. For 2,000 years, God has guarded and protected His church that we will see growing in these next few chapters. So let me ask you, the ultimate witness is, yes, they may die for their faith, martyrs. But what's harder, to die for your faith or to live for it? And I think, I, I mean that. Would you witness in the same way if you were to, if, if somebody, if, if, if your life depended on it, would you stand by your faith? But then on the flip side, if, if you had the freedom and the ability to stand by your faith, but you were going to face persecution and difficulties, would you still stand by your faith with the same determination in the long run? So what I call you, I encourage you, first testify, be a witness, share your testimony. Do you realize that God has given you a miracle by transforming your life? 
Do you tell other people about that miracle? Do you tell your children about that miracle? Do you tell your parents about that miracle with those at the store, at the grocery store, with those at work? Do you tell them? Do you testify? Do you bear witness of the fact that God changed your life? You are a different person. Secondly, do you testify? Do you, are you a witness? Do you share your testimony with your family, with your kids? Do they know that you became a Christian? How Jesus changed your life? Do you testify? Are you a witness to yourself? What do I mean by that? In seminary, they used to tell us, preach the gospel to yourself daily. Do you remember God's faithfulness through the years? Do you recall how much He's changed you and how much He's promised to change you? When you read God's Word every day, do you feel a sense of gratitude for His care, for His love, for His faithfulness? Does that draw you in? See, sometimes in the midst of times of difficulty, when I get afraid, when I get overwhelmed, the best thing I can do is look to the simplicity of the Gospel. Because the simplicity of the Gospel and the beauty of God's faithfulness makes me remember that these things that are just stirring around immediately around me are just a tiny picture. This past week during the preparations for Vacation Bible School, if you ask any of the volunteers, so much has gone wrong. We've had more hospital visits this week than you know, the past week combined, just with our kids. Satan is really excited about messing this next week up. But you know what's amazing? If you take a look at it in the grand perspective, God has an incredible plan. And I can lose it in the car. Ah! But if I take a look at it from the big perspective and realize that God is working. For some reason, God is using our families to reach out to, to the city of Clover to witness, to bear witness to what he is doing. You see, we live in a country with liberties where we can share our faith. In the country where I come from, where I was born in Colombia, uh, people are persecuted for their faith. So what my dad would do, he would teach pastors, but these pastors were teaching others who, when gorillas, I don't mean the animal, I think it's, it's a leftist group, would come to church members' group and, and ask them, and force them to plant cocaine on their land. They would say, no. No, it's, not only is it illegal, but I won't do it because this is causing suffering of others. They would kill their families. They would burn their farms, and then they would do it anyway. They tried to stand up for their faith, and people were being killed in Colombia. In the, in, in, the, in the country of Yemen, we had next-door neighbors when we were at Wheaton who had to run for their lives. They barely made it out alive. In fact, their teammates were killed, but they made it out alive. They were missionaries there trying to share the gospel of Jesus Christ. We have freedom in this country. Do we take advantage of it? Do we witness? Do we testify? Would you bet your life on this faith? The book of Acts tells us the story of those who did. So my desire as we go through these pages is that God would transform our hearts and God would, God would show us that he has been faithful to his church but also call us to a higher level of witness, that we would be intentional. We would just wait for those opportunities, but that we would eagerly look for them, try to make those opportunities to tell others about Jesus Christ. Let's pray. God, we thank you for this day. We thank you for those who bore witness to your faithfulness and to your goodness. Father, we thank you for the hope of the resurrection. Thank you that you have promised that because Jesus rose from the dead, we will rise once again too, and we live, we'll live with you forever. God, I thank you for the Holy Spirit. God, I don't have boldness on my own. But I thank you for the Holy Spirit that has not only given us boldness, but has given us the words to speak. I pray that when we sit down and pray on our own, when we read the Bible, when we do it with our families, that we would eagerly desire to be shaped and prepared to share the gospel with others. God, thank you for the hope that you have promised to come again. God, I thank you that this life is not all there is. This life is full of pain, full of death, full of disappointment. 
full of grief and discouragement and despair. Yet, God, you have promised a life to come. Teach us through our words and our actions that we would share the love of Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.